It's time for us to get started. We're going to be picking up where we left off last time in James chapter 3. That's James chapter 3. We were on the last two verses of this chapter and going through each of the characteristics that uh, James described and talking about the wisdom that is from above and trying to use some of these descriptions to help better understand what this was. Now, just for sake of review and sake of helping us get our context together, what was some of the issues, or what were some of the issues that were going on in the first century that would cause wisdom to come up like this? And discussions about wisdom and what the wisdom of the world is versus the wisdom of God. What was going on? Anybody remember? That is definitely one part of it. The church is being attacked by Judaizers, and these are definitely Jewish Christians, and so that would have been something that they would have faced. Another aspect to that, because that is part of it, but not the entire picture of what we're looking at, but you have an issue in the first century of people who were philosophers, Gnostics, different groups of that nature, and what were they trying to do with all the ideologies around the world? Exactly. They were trying to take the best of all of them and just mix them together into one really ugly ball. And that's kind of what they were doing in the church as well. In some of the first century churches, they were trying to take some of these ideas from the Jews or from the Gentiles, from the pagans, and they were mixing these ideas together and coupling it with Christianity rather than taking Christianity as a whole. And so that's what we were getting to in the end of chapter 3 was he described, first of all, the wisdom that is from men, which some of that involved the pettiness among the early Christians, saying you're, you're fighting amongst yourselves, there's random issues that you're dealing with for no other reason than you're just not listening to God. And so he was dealing with, at the very end of this chapter, specifically verse 17, he says, "...but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason." full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now that's the uh, English Standard Version, but some of the descriptions we were using last time, we had gotten to the point of gentleness and saying that a wise man understands the need to be gentle. True or false? Gentleness can be seen as weakness. True. Gentleness can be seen as weakness. Some people, in fact, will get angry if a person is just a little too gentle. Say, well, you really should have drove that point home. Well, as a wise man, he understands how to pick his battles. A man who has the wisdom of God understands the need to pick certain battles and not to fully engage with the situation as much as others. If I was talking to a person, do I need to take their own personality into account when I'm teaching them? On a one-on-one -on -one basis, definitely we should. In a public setting, it's nearly impossible to do that. Because when you're in a public setting, you're looking at, well, in this room alone, we've probably got around 20-something, 30-something different personalities. So you've got all these different personalities you're dealing with, people who are in varying stages of understanding of the Bible, people who have various personalities. Some people you need to get in their face and say, hey, you need to wake up. And other people you need to say, hey, let's go talk for a minute. There's a difference in personalities that you're dealing with. And so a wise man understands the need to be gentle. To say, okay, this needs to be dealt with in a sensitive way. It's kind of the old adage that we've heard before. Don't get mad at people on the road because you don't know what they're doing. Someone comes speeding by and your first thought is, oh, that guy is just drag racing. I wish he would just slow down so I can not feel like I'm about to die. 
but maybe that person was rushing to the hospital because they just found out their family member was in critical condition. So it's a difference in mentality that we're dealing with here. A Christian understands the need for self-control. And self-control is essential in gentleness. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. The 2 Timothy chapter 2. If someone could read that as soon as they get there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 23. All right, is that a gentle way of putting that or a direct way of putting that? It's pretty plain spoke, pretty direct and to the point. And we said with the book of James as well that James is a very direct book as well. So why would James write about gentleness but also himself be very similar to how Paul just was in a direct and to the point description here? What's the similarities going on? Why would he do it this way? Absolutely. Timing is going to be a major factor in this. But also, does directness negate gentleness? Not necessarily, no. I can be direct with you, but in a gentle way. There's a difference in saying, you're a sinner, and you're a sinner. There's a difference in those two positions. One is from a position of, I'm going to tell you what's what. And another is from a position of, this is your condition. I'm trying to help you. How many of you have been to a doctor's office or a clinic of some sort, and you just had a doctor or a nurse that had absolutely no bedside manner? Probably most of us at one point or another have been in that situation. Well, as Christians, are we not commenting on the spiritual health of people? Are we not trying to help people with their spiritual health? Now, obviously, we have the medicine. We have the training from the God. We have the manual that we're supposed to read. But just like those nurses or doctors, we can fall victim and we can also be guilty of not following the guidelines, of not living out what we've been taught to do. Now, this is not saying that we always have to be quiet in everything that we do, and there's never a time to be direct or to get in some difficult conversations. No, that's not what we're talking about here. But it is a comment on the fact that we have to gauge these battles. We have to make sure that we understand the ability to be gentle. There's a difference in someone who is incapable of being gentle and chooses not in a situation to be gentle. It's similar to the idea of meekness that we've talked about before. Meekness does not equal weakness. That is a statement that a lot of people have heard. Meekness equals weakness. Well, that's not true. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is I have the ability to obliterate you, but I chose not to. I chose to be the bigger man in this moment and walk away. So that's kind of the situation that's being discussed here. But it goes on to the next point, easy to be entreated. This is the King James rendition of it. Easy to be entreated. What does that statement mean just from face value? What does it mean to be easy to be entreated? Approachable. Approachable. 
approachable. That's a great description for that word. Easy to be entreated, easy to be approached. Approachable. What is the common attitude of 2024 America towards religious people? Just throw out some words. What are some words that people use in description of religious people in America right now? Resentment. Resentment, that's a good one. What else? Critical. What was it? Critical. Critical, that's another one, definitely. What else? Delusional. Delusional. All those things put together, does that sound like somebody you would want to approach? Or talk to about a serious problem? No. We've talked about before how the world is always going to have hateful statements. The world is always going to have critical statements of those who try to follow God because the world hates what's not its. But if those things are true, if those things are actually being said in a factual way, is that not a scathing critique for the church, especially after what we just read in James? Is that not something we can look at and say, okay, that's something that needs to be fixed? If that's actually happening, it's something that needs to be fixed. Now, does easy to be entreated or approachable mean that we have to have a jacuzzi in the foyer, we have to have nice lights everywhere that looks like a rock show every time we come in, we've got to make sure that there's an elevator under the floor so that I can rise up on Sunday mornings and have the smoke machines going. Is that what we need? No. No, 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 no. But we should present ourselves in such a way that if someone has a question, we're not there to belittle them. We're not there to tell them just how stupid they are for what they believe because likely for many of us, we've held a view in our past or we've held an idea in our past that was absolutely insane. But we believed it with all of our hearts. We believed it to the point we would die on that hill. They say, you want to you die on this hill? You say, I want to be buried on that hill. The same is true for many people in the world. Let's not forget that when we're asking people to become Christians, when we're asking people to look at the Word of God especially if we're dealing with religious people who think they're following God, we are asking them to look at their own lives and say, everything that you've done your entire life, all the people you care about, all the people you hold as mentors, all the people who are close friends to you are all wrong and they're all in danger. Very few people would look at that and say, sign me up. It's our job to show them the truth, absolutely. It is our job to critique in a kind way what's going on that's wrong. But we have to present ourselves in such a way as Jesus presented himself. Jesus was very stern with certain people. He was very direct. In fact, sometimes we would look at how Jesus responded and say, wow, that was really ugly. Jesus looked at a group of people and said, you brood of vipers. It's a good way to get decked in 2024. But he looked at people, he knew their hearts and he knew their actions, and he said, this is who you are. As Christians, our job is to imitate Christ, to be as closely following Christ as possible. For those of us who were here on Sunday, we talked about the life of of Judas and the life of Peter and how they were following after Christ and how in that day and age when someone was a follower of a rabbi or a teacher of some sort... They didn't just go to a classroom like we do. They didn't just say, okay, we're going to meet up at 5 o'clock on a Tuesday morning and 
which that's a crazy early time, but we're not going to meet up at a certain time in a certain place and just learn. No, they followed him. They followed him closely. They saw how he lived on a daily basis. They saw how he conducted business. They saw how he treated the poor. They saw how he treated everyone. And that form of teaching, if you go look at some of these studies that have been done, really was a much better form of teaching than we've got today. Statistically speaking, because it was more of a mentorship, I'm showing you in every situation how I'm wanting you to live out your life. If you want what I have, do what I do. See, in our day and age, we have teachers who say, well, I'm going to throw out my ideas and then you go prove it. Well, if we are trying to find all these different ideas, I can come up with any opinion I want to of an untested idea. We can look around today and hear all kinds of political theories. If we just do this, it's going to fix everything. If we just do this, we'll solve racism. If we do this, we'll fix... No one act is going to fix everything. Why? Because people cannot follow the plan. (laughs) People are not always going to be idealistic. Some people just want what they want. And they're going to hurt who they want to hurt. But as Christians, if we're trying to be those who are easy to be entreated, that means we have to be people who are approachable in any situation. People who others are willing to talk to. How hard is it to try to convert someone, to try to talk about Jesus with somebody who doesn't like you? Jesus dealt with that all throughout his ministry of having to do public speaking to talk to a wide group of people. When Paul was up on Mars Hill, how did the, what was the response to Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17? There were three recorded responses to Paul. After he got done with that incredible speech, there were three different responses to what he did. What were they? Not in that, not in that situation. Some heard him. Some heard what he said and understood it and believed it and followed after him. Others mocked him. And others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So some made fun of him, some listened to him, and some were indifferent. Do you think people have changed since then? No, no, not really. People are consistently chaotic. That's basically how we are. We're always going to mess something up, or we're always going to follow after something. So it's, that's what we're dealing with in our day and age today versus what the apostles were dealing with as well. It's a very similar circumstance. So that's the next point that we were dealing with. In fact, we can look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, and see how Christians are to be those who bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How can you bear what you don't know? How can you support someone when you don't know what they're going through. Addition to that, how can someone help you if you don't tell them? How can someone support you when you need it? One of the most crippling issues in America today is a... I I hesitate to call it a sickness because it's something that is so easily treated, but chronic loneliness. Think about that word, chronic Loneliness. What does the word chronic mean? Ongoing, never ending. Ongoing or never ending. Someone who is lonely, surrounded by a crowd of people. It's almost like a 
It really is almost like an illness. It is, it's a sickness of the mind. It's a sickness of attitude. But do you think that people get to that point overnight? You think that child leaves their home where they're surrounded by their family, goes out into the world, and the first night now I've got chronic loneliness? No. The unfortunate thing is that many people who suffer with that surrounded themselves with people who left them or self-isolated. It is very easy to self-isolate. It is very easy to say, well, I don't want to burden anyone with my problems. Friends, if someone is burdened by your problems, they are not your friend. It's as simple as that. How do I know that? Because as Christians, it is literally in the Bible for us to bear one another's burdens. If we're trying to be Christians together, trying to support one another, trying to live as Christ lived, and I'm angry at someone for asking me for help, I'm not living like Christ. I'm not following after what he said. But what's, what does he say next in this list? He says, full of mercy and good fruits. The one who is wise and seeks peace will be full of mercy. How many of you have met somebody who is just, they want to throw the whole book at every situation? One minor infraction. If someone jaywalks, they want that guy put behind bars. <laughs> How many of you have met people like that in one way or another? Now let's take the, the legal status out. Let's change that with religion as a whole. Someone who comes in from a rough background into the church and they immediately want to bash them over the head for every t the single thing that they do. True or false? Christianity is a maturing process. True. True or false? Some Christians act like toddlers. True or false, some Christians who think that they are adults in the faith act like toddlers. True. See, we all can agree with that. That's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, yeah, people do it. It is very hard to admit it when we're the ones doing it. It is very hard to look at ourselves and say, yep, you're the one that's acting bad. So if we are wise and we understand the word of God, then we also understand that God has mercy for me. Why would I not show that to someone else? God easily could have thrown the book at me the first time I had a minor infraction, and he would have been well within his rights to do so, but he offered me mercy. This whole section here when we are talking about comparisons of wisdom of God, really it's imitating the personality of God. Because all these things that we've said are characteristics of God, and so if we're trying to imitate Him, then we're going to try to have some of those characteristics. So He's full of mercy and good fruits. Let's look at the book of Ephesians. Specifically, Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse... 1 and go to, let's go to verse 4, or verse 3, excuse me.
All right. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, lays out the need for peace, the need for unity. We have abused the word unity so much in our society. One of my favorite descriptions that I've heard, and it is, it's such a contradictory idea because you want to believe it to be true, but it shows itself naturally wrong. We've heard the statement, unity by diversity, in reference to ideology, in reference to ideology. If we have a family that is adamant about their viewpoint, and we have another family member that is adamant about their viewpoint, so much so that they come into fighting with one another, is there going to be unity in that household? In fact, one of the top ten reasons why divorces happen is marriage cross-ideology. One spouse has one religion, one spouse has another religion. That's one of the main reasons for divorce. Because how can you have a, a, agreement on viewpoints if you can't even agree on basic morality? But friends, there are so many churches around our country right now who are trying to have unity by just not talking about things. We're going to make everybody feel good. We're going to, make every, we're going to talk about happy things. It's like when you have your family members and you know that that one uncle is going to fight with that one cousin. And so you pull them aside before it starts and say, no talking about politics, no talking about sports, no talking about... Re-. You see what we're talking about here? But the reality is those are the important things to that person. You're saying, don't show that. Don't engage in that. Friends, if we are all trying to be Christ-like and we're all trying to live the Christian life, if we can't agree on what that is, how can we have unity? How can I say, well, this is how one is saved, but then say, but you can also be saved this way. How can I say, this is how God has betrayed himself, this is who God is, but I also have a different characteristic of who God is. How can I say, this is how God established the church, but say, but here's another way we can do it. Is there going to be unity in that? The next set of verses in Ephesians chapter 4 are all about the unity and the singleness of God. There's one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Why does God focus on one so much if it's okay to have 50 million different ways of doing things? Was God okay in the Old Testament if Israel started trying to come up with their own way of worshiping him? Well, we know Malachi 1 disproves that. In many cases, it was a death penalty because what was the government of early Israel? Mosaic law. law, yes, but who was their king? God. It was a theocracy. They broke the law. They betrayed their king. It's going to be a death penalty. Absolutely, and that's, and that's like exactly. If we, if we understand that humanity hasn't changed all that much, it's not going to be shocking when we look at the Old Testament. 
and we see how people that were supposed to be followers of God treated him. How did we get to the point where when the Messiah himself comes, the one who had been prophesied from the beginning, the one who had been shown this is who's going to come, these are the characteristics he's going to have, and then Jesus comes and fulfills all of them, that God's own chosen people are going to look at him and say, no, not my Messiah. Because they had years and years and years of rejecting him. Of coming up with their own idea of who he's supposed to be. Friends, the world is not any different in 2024. Because people want their version of Jesus. Their version of God. Not how he described himself. Not how he wrote of who he was. No, they want their own version. We've gone so far as some people say, well, I like to picture Jesus in this way. Or I like to picture Jesus as the baby in the manger. I like to picture... Friends, if he has asked us to focus on something... Is that not what we should choose to focus on if we love him? If you have a spouse and they were to say, well, here's something I want you to pay attention to. Here's something I want you to focus on. You do everything but focus on that. Are they going to be happy with you? Are they going to be like, hey, well, it's okay. You didn't focus on what I asked you to. It was really important to me. God has asked us to live a certain way to follow after Him, not because He just wants to rob us of things, not because He just wants to beat us over the head, but He said, this is the only way that you can be saved. This is the only way that you can come to Me. Please choose this path. When we read the New Testament and we see all these descriptions that Paul wrote and Peter wrote and many others wrote about how to live a moral Christian life, What is my attitude about it? Do I look at it and I say, oh, well, here's just another set of rules. Let's go read about how else I'm doing things wrong. Or do I look at this and I say, this is how I can grow closer to God. This is how I can be more like Him. You see, that's what James is doing here. James is not beating the early church over the head and saying, hey, you're not doing this. He's saying, hey... This is how you can imitate our Lord. This is how you can avoid conflict with one another. This is how you can live a peaceable life when you're not going to have a peaceable life in the world. He's offering alternatives. He's offering escapes, just as Christ did from the beginning. So let's go down a little bit further. Without partiality. This is the second time that we've dealt with this from James. Do you think it was an issue that they were dealing with? In James chapter 2, we had an entire section of the chapter dealing with this idea that we're not to be respecters of persons, that we're not to show preferential treatment to just those who can do us good. It's always been humorous to me how people talk about, well, you've got to be wealthy. You've got to be, in order to get respect, you've got to be wearing the nicest clothes. You've got to be having the biggest wallet. You've got to be driving the nicest car. You've got to have the best mansion. Do you know why people give respect to those people? Because they want a cut of it. They're not there because he's such a good dude. They're there because he's got that much money. Friends, if we respect people purely based on their appearance or purely based on what we can get out of them, we've got a problem. And there are many churches that have gone down that road. So what's the next thing here? Without hypocrisy. 
the fun one. This is probably the third time we've talked about this, and we got five minutes to talk about it, so, or a couple of minutes to talk about it. Not being an actor. We had an instructor at the Memphis School of Preaching who talked to a bunch of preaching students, some of them ranging from 18 to 30, and he gave them all the same message. He said, believe what you preach or you will tear yourself apart. Believe what you preach or you will tear yourself apart. I'm going to add a caveat to that. Believe in God or it will tear you apart. Well, that even ties in with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, where he says evil communications corrupt good morals. What he's talking about there in 2 Corinthians as well is dealing with this idea that we're not to bind ourselves to those who are going to turn us away from God. You don't enter into situations where you know that the people you are spending your time with are going to constantly berate your faith. Here is an issue that I've heard from many, many people, and this really needs to stop among Christians. You do not purposefully start fights or purposely put yourself in spiritually dangerous situations to get a little stronger. I don't go to war to exercise. I go to exercise with, in a gym or somewhere like that. A safer place. The same is true for, for Christians. If I'm, especially if I'm a young Christian and I know I'm struggling with my faith, the last thing I need to do is go pick and fights with people. The last thing I need to do is go put myself in spiritually compromising situations. Because it is going to be incredibly difficult not to agree with what's going on around me. You may have heard me say this before, and I try to repeat it as often as possible to make sure people remember it. But for every positive in the Bible, there's a negative. And for every negative in the Bible, there's a positive. What do I mean by that? If God says, thou shalt not, or you will be condemned, that implies something, does it not? If you don't do this, you won't be condemned. You won't be in danger. Exactly, exactly. And so if we're looking at the situation of being genuine people, we can say, well, don't be a hypocrite, and we can be so focused on not being a hypocrite that we end up being a hypocrite. <laughs> you say, well, I can't, I can't be this, 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 and so what do you end up doing? You end up trying to change your personality to make sure you don't end up like that. It gets a little complicated, right? The reality is we need to live out our faith. Live out our belief in Christ. If I understand who He is, if I understand the word that I've been given, if I study, if I'm growing, there's nothing to be ashamed of. I might have moments where I stumble and where I fall. Yes, those are sad and heartbreaking things, but I have my brothers and sisters to build me back up. I'm not supposed to be a hypocrite in the sense of I'm pretending myself to be more righteous or more holy than anyone else because, friends, that's just frankly not true. It's not that I'm more holy because I chose to be a Christian. No, 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 no. It's that God is good. God gave me the path. I chose to follow after Him. I'm no inherently better off than someone else. 
They have the same opportunity that I did. They might choose a different option, and they have their reward for that. But I chose the path to follow God. And that's what we're trying to do. We try to show the world, look, we're not just holier-than-thou perfect people, but we're also not people who allow sin. We're not people who make light of sin. We're trying to show you the path forward, not back. Not back. He also describes in the last part the fruit of righteousness, which is the results of what we're living out. If we're following after these things, we're going to have good results. We're going to have the results of following after God, becoming more godly, trying to improve our lives. Now, it doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. It doesn't mean everything's going to be hunky-dory and we're going to be singing kumbaya underneath a rainbow and butterflies, but it means that we can be doing better and growing. So that's where we're going to leave off. We will pick up there next week. Thank you so much for your attention.